you all seem to have survived today. <coughs> uh, <coughs> you may have, you may remember that <coughs> a, a few weeks ago I was talking about the um, young Sri Lankan boy who had started chanting <coughs> these very elaborate Pali suttas uh, at age two, between two and three. Uh, <clears throat> so I managed to remember to bring in uh, the CD, and we'll just play, you know, a few minutes of it to give you a sense. <clears throat> As you listen, I mean, the first thing that will be very obvious is uh, that it's the voice of a very, very young child. <clears throat> and the recording is not, it's not a great recording, but it's clear enough. <clears throat> As you listen carefully, I think you'll actually be able to hear um, quite clearly uh, <clears throat> how well he's articulating the poly words. You know, so at first you're going to just hear, <clears throat> excuse me, the basic you know melody, but if you listen carefully, you'll really be able to pick out and. It's quite, it's really quite remarkable. Um, so again, <clears throat> as just to remind you, you know, when he became a little old and was meditating, he said that all of this was <clears throat> a recollection from <clears throat> a previous life, actually of many centuries before, where he was one of a group of chanting monks. And somehow... You know, these were the memories of that life that were coming back. So, this is not presented as proof of rebirth, but it is interesting. <laughs> you know, and it just at least makes one wonder. Uh, so. <laughs>
studied Pali. <laughs> so it's, it's so beautiful. I could sit just for an hour listening to that. <clears throat> oh, do you have any questions you'd like to <clears throat> discuss? I heard that the boy may come here to meditate and practice. Is that correct? Well, he, he, he's now in his probably late 40s or so. He, he, he was in our first teacher training program. Uh, so he's back. He's actually, uh, he'd married uh, <coughs> his two grown kids and is married and divorced. Uh, <coughs> and he's just uh, about to ordain, you know, for kind of a permanent ordination uh, in the spring. Yeah, so this is this is <clears throat> an important question, especially you know as you're getting ready to leave the retreat. What's <clears throat> what's the balance? What's the relationship between one's inner practice and an active engagement with the world? <clears throat> it's <clears throat> it's a little strange to. Uh, 
speak of the Dalai Lama's inner practice not having affected the world. (laughs) And I think that is precisely the response to that question. You know, as as one develops one's inner life and understanding, uh, we can't help but influence the world. You know, it, it may be our immediate surroundings, it may be on the scale of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you know, who affects you know, untold number of beings, uh, who then go out and are doing their own work, and they're touching all the beings they're touching, so it just ripples out in the uh, greater our own understanding, you know, and uh, development of selflessness, of compassion, it can't be separate from the world. You know, it is what manifests. The form it takes will be very different. You know, if <clears throat> you think of maybe the Bodhisattva before he became the Buddha, or <clears throat> the Dalai Lama perhaps in some of his previous, you know, rebirths or other great beings. You know, how many lifetimes perhaps have they spent in a cave as a renunciate? And somebody would be looking and say, you know, what good are they doing? They're not, they're not doing anything for the world. And yet 2,600 years later, we're benefiting from the Buddha's great enlightenment. We're here because of what he had accomplished. You know? And so I think it's important um, not to take too narrow a slice of life in terms of assessing its impact. <coughs> And what feels really important is whether one is actively engaging in the world, kind of on the front lines of social action, or one is sitting in a cave, literal or metaphorical, you know, purifying one's heart and mind. Uh, I think the critical question is what is the motivation? You know, is the motivation that's. energizing us, one of compassion, of caring, you know, of kindness, or is the motivation a selfish one, you know, and that's something we need to look at whatever form our actions take. It's really clear to me that, you know, each one of us has our own kind of talents and interests and capabilities and we'll all be pulled in different ways to manifest our understanding. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a hierarchy of compassionate action. You know, some activities are more compassionate than others if the motivation, you know, is really one of helping and serving. Uh, <clears throat> everything you've been doing for the last six weeks or three months is deepening the possibility 
for compassionate responsiveness as you go out in the world. Because what makes that responsiveness possible is a willingness, a willingness to come close to suffering. That's what gives rise to compassion for people who don't have that willingness, who stay <coughs> uh, away from either one's own or other's suffering then that's the cause of indifference or apathy or you know, not caring. So you have just spent <laughs> how many hours, how many mind moments practicing, training, allowing you know, oneself to come close to the suffering that's there. You know, the pain in the body, the pain in the mind, the, when you think of you know, situations in the world and an ability to open to it in one's own heart. It's that capacity to hold, to be with suffering without being overwhelmed by it, which makes possible every kind of compassionate action, compassionate response. So, I don't see any separation at all between the inner life and outer activity. <clears throat> They're really of a piece. Yes, free will or determinism. <laughs> and this, this is a question that I spent many long hours in college <laughs> discussing because um, without getting into uh, philosophical you know, explanations of those two positions. Uh, say two things about it which may or may not help. Certainly those hours of conversations I had did not help. <laughs> <laughs> so the, I'm, just, I'm just throwing this out as seeds for your own reflection. First, just to you know, reflect on the difference between the meaning of conditioned and determined. You know, that things arise from causes, but that's different, that's a different understanding than something is predetermined. And I know I'm in the negative zone with respect to my knowledge of quantum physics. But I just have some sense there's something in that <laughs> that explains this, <laughs> what I just said. <laughs> 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 I, 
I don't know, something about the uncertainty principle and non-locality, and I don't know. <laughs> so it's just to hold the possibility that everything, everything has causes, but there are so many multiple causes and strands and... Uh, Yeah. Um, <coughs> see, it gets, it's, it's an interesting, uh, you know, investigation. And a lot of the confusion often comes because uh, in the teachings we sometimes use conventional language and sometimes language reflecting the more ultimate reality. So in the equanimity phrase, for example, we are the owners of our karma. So that, that would imply someone who's the owner. But that's just a conventional usage of that term. There actually is no owner and no self, but rather it's just an in, or a, a pointing to the fact that what we call self and the felt sense of self is a lawful unfolding of conditions. So it's not that there's anyone behind it who's owning it. So in the understanding of that, then the choice uh, can be understood in terms of the more clearly we understand how how this process is unfolding, the more it can be influenced by choices. Now, choice itself is, is a conditioned phenomena. But what is choice conditioned by? Choices, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, choice is often conditioned by delusion. Right? When we're not seeing clearly. So if delusion is conditioning the mental factor of choice. So then the options you know, f- for clear seeing and for wisdom are very limited. We're simply, we're simply playing out the patterns of our conditioning. If wisdom is conditioning choice, if mindfulness is conditioning choice, you know, as we see alternatives, and this actually is, was one of the written questions. One of the meanings of mindfulness, beside you know, that quality of coming face to face with the object, being present and, and deeply settled with the object, not, not wobbling. But one of the meanings of mindfulness is the ability to recall or call to mind what is skillful and what is unskillful. So it has that kind of memory function. If mindfulness is not present and we're not calling to mind what is skillful and what is unskillful, so then the choices that are going to follow from that lack of mindfulness, you know, lack of discernment, as I said, 
very often going to be unskillful leading to suffering. If mindfulness is there, and all of this is conditioned phenomena. But it's understanding, yes, these conditions create uh, the ground for wiser choices, which bring more happy results. It's kind of, I, I don't know if this is an exact analogy, but, you know, if we don't understand the law of gravity, there's no possibility of going to the moon. Because we don't understand how gravity works, and so we're bound completely by it. When we understand the law of gravity, then many choices open up from the understanding of how things work. So it doesn't mean that, you know, when we go to the moon, we're somehow outside the realm of conditioning. It's just understanding the broader field of conditioning, which gives us the opportunity for wiser choices, which in turn leads to greater, greater ease, greater peace. So I hope that helps somewhat. And I think you, know, you all know this. You, you wouldn't have lasted this long, <coughs> you know, if, if you didn't have some intuitive, maybe, you know, maybe not a conceptual, but intuitive understanding that, yes, being aware opens the space for wiser discernment, you know, for wiser choices. I can't resist this. <laughs> <laughs> So, this goes back to my uh, philosophic mind. <laughs> I probably would only say this at the end of a retreat, because it's something I certainly wouldn't suggest you're thinking about in the midst of a retreat. But just with regard to this question, what could the term free will possibly mean? I mean, those two words have been put together, but that doesn't mean they mean anything put together. <laughs> because to my mind, uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> to, to, to my mind, free will implies someone being free. But given that that's not the case, what does the term mean? Okay, so just, <laughs> you, you can forget about all that now. I just had to get it out. Oh, wait, let's do one. <laughs> at my age, we do one at a time. <laughs> uh, 
I would say based on my own experience, <laughs> I would say uh, often, but not necessarily. So <coughs> I'll kind of reverse it a little bit. I would say that each time we practice the renunciation of a desire, you know, when we see the desire arise, and we say, no, I don't need to do that. My experience is that each time, you know, I'm able to do that, that possibility, there's a greater possibility that that will enter my mind when other desires arise. You know, because they'll be, it's almost like exercising the renunciation muscle. You know, and it's just, oh yeah, there's, there is this ability not to buy in. Of course, as we know, some desires are much more seductive than others. Uh, you know, and so we may be able to renounce in one arena more easily than in another. But I think there is some carryover of the ability. You know, so it's just the reverse, you know, putting it in the reverse order. Um, that the more, we, the, the more we feed the desire, so that habit, that tendency gets stronger. And so then it takes a little more awareness to actually let go of desires in another arena. So it's very, I mean, these are very interesting questions to... <clears throat> really examine in one's life, and it, it really brings home the fact that our whole life is our practice. You know, when, when you leave here and you know, you're back in your ordinary world, you're going to be in a very fertile field for watching desire <laughs> and the possibility of renunciation, and you know, so... It really is, uh, our life is our practice. So with all, the li- with all the various lists that can feel overwhelming, you know, is, is there a, a sequence to really exploring them or you just go to the one that calls you or interests you? Um, most fundamentally, you just have to remember one thing. No, two things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole, you know, with all the lists and all the teachings and everything you've heard for, you know, all of these weeks, it really comes down to something very simple, which I think I've mentioned many times. Be aware and don't cling. So all the lists are simply pointing to that. Yeah, and there are various suggestions and ways of developing an ability 
to do that, but it really comes down to something that simple. We want to be aware of what's present, what's arising, and then not clinging to it. Because if we're, if we're clinging to what's changing, it's going to be a source of suffering. Now, not clinging does not mean being undiscerning. Because we can be aware of what's arising, not clinging to it, <clears throat> and still be discerning, oh, this is a skillful arising, this is unskillful, this should be acted on, this should not be acted on. Right? So not clinging doesn't imply, oh, we just sit back and don't do anything in the world. Right? But we're not caught by what's arising. You know, we're not identified with it. And because of that space of freedom, we actually can make these wise discernment, wise choices, and follow through with wise action. Uh, so that's really simplifies it in terms of all the lists. Uh, but another way of looking at it, <coughs> which I really found to be true as I was you know, giving that whole series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, which ended up in the book, what became so apparent to me is that you can look at any one aspect and it opens the door to the whole Dharma. You know, if you, if you really, if you, look at the, if you look at the elements, if you look at mindfulness of breathing, if you look at the hindrances, if you look at whatever, you could look at whatever kind of captures your interest and if you explore it deeply, the whole Dharma will be there. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you could really just follow your interests. So, um, spending a few months looking at my own suffering and getting to know a little bit better, I assume that going home I'm going to see a lot of suffering <coughs> with my own friends and family. And uh, an impulse to relieve that suffering. And I'm wondering uh, skillful ways to do that um, without kind of becoming an armchair psychologist or a uh, Dharma teacher. Or, you know. Yes. <clears throat> so how to bring one's newfound enlightenment <laughs> <laughs> to one's family and friends. <laughs> now that's, I know that, I know that one very well. <laughs> In fact, (laughs) I mean, I saw this really clearly uh, when I would come home from practice times in Asia uh, with my family. Um, Because, of course, one sees patterns, just as we've seen patterns in ourselves, we see patterns in others that we see are causing suffering. You know, that whether it's the judging mind or being super aversive or whatever the pattern may be, <clears throat> you know, we can see it in the people we're close to. It. And the impulse is to, you know, if you could just let go of this, you would be happier, you know. <laughs> And it's true, you know, so I, th- I, think the, I think the impulse 
is coming from a genuine place. My experience, and it was very, there was a real turning point in this, when I realized that the starting place absolutely had to be acceptance of people exactly as they were. And genuine, you know, not, not, not tolerating, <laughs> but a genuine acceptance as if this is how they're going to be for the rest of their lives, you know. So not coming into the relationship with that edge, that energetic edge of wanting to change them, even when it's coming from that very loving space. And what I found with my family was that as soon as I realized that, and it took a while, it took many visits home <coughs> to realize that, when I could just settle back and be totally accept, oh yeah, th this is just how they are. You know, this, the same combination of skillful and unskillful that we all have. But when I could relax into the acceptance, first I saw that that was more genuinely a place of metta. Because there wasn't that, you know, that edge of wanting somebody to be different, even if it's for their own good. And out of that space of my relaxation, of genuine acceptance, and just kind of an easeful metta, I found much easier to have really interesting conversations. You know, because the conversations weren't coming from a place of, oh, if only you could be different. Right? Uh, and then what happens, happens. You know, and sometimes people are receptive, sometimes may not be receptive, not even interested. So there's work we have to do first, I think, kind of to free ourselves from that wanting them to be different, uh, which makes, which opens up different possibilities. Uh, it was dramatic, you know, that's why I'm, I'm kind of emphasizing it. Uh, before that shift, well, you know, we know, just if you think of a few with somebody who loves you a lot, but really would like you to be a little different. <laughs> you know, what's, what's, our, what's our response, energetic response to that? It's, you know, it's like some kind of defenses go up. It's not, a, it's not an inviting energy. So this, this, I think, would be a, a tremendous place to pay attention to, you know, when you go home and you're with friends. And, uh, and it's beautiful. When, when we really do come to that place of just being there with people as they are, and we, we just create that space, genuinely, you know, we're really there for it. It really is a meta-filled space, not, not, not the meta of you know, the formal practice, but just a space of, you, know, you could say, basic friendliness, basic goodwill, and not wanting anything. And out of the not wanting, all kinds of things can happen.
the extent to which one experiences suffering and the extent to one um, and the the extent um, to which one is interested in engaged in Dharma if one discovers it. Um, I'm kind of thinking about the link between those two and thinking about Bhikkhuma from what mm. I read of her story. And then karma. If you think, say, oh, I've suffered a lot and thinking about good or bad karma and then thinking about that, that in part led me to Dharma and to being really engaged and walk this path towards freedom. I'm trying to think about that a bit, if that can be useful about karma and the link between one's own experience of suffering and one's own uh, dedication to the practice. Yeah. Yeah, So the question was about kind of the link between one's own suffering and just our own karmic unfolding and the link to practice. This is something that I read in a teaching by Ajahn Chah, but I think it's a general Dharma teaching when he, he talked about there being two kinds of suffering. There's suffering which leads to more suffering and suffering which leads to the end of suffering. You know, so suffering by itself is not necessarily liberating because unless we have come to some place of interest, of understanding, of investigation, for many people it's overwhelming. You know, and you know, as people go through a lot of suffering, if there are no tools, no understanding of how to be with it, whether through formal practice or just through their own innate wisdom, you know, some people, some people just really have that in them. But without that, the suffering can really be overwhelming. You know, and. Yeah, we, we just see it and play it out in the world in a million different ways. Just think of, you know, all the different kinds of uh, addictions where, where people are suffering and then trying to alleviate their suffering through means that just cause more suffering. You know, and this, this gets played out in many, many arenas. So I think it depends, you know, how we're holding it whether it's on with leading or not. Mm-hmm. And that's why uh, in one way or another, whether it's you know, these particular teachings or any kind of teachings which actually help us understand the nature of suffering and the causes of it, <clears throat> that is said to be the condition for faith to arise. You know, because we're in the midst of whatever the suffering is, but there's enough understanding to see the potential of a path out of it. So that's huge. You know, even, even as we're maybe caught in it, we at least glimpse a path out of it. So that faith, that, that just leads onward, you know, all, all the way to freedom. Mm. Once you have even the tiniest sense, you know, it becomes a very, you 
Okay, let me, let, me, let me just clarify. So, kind of interested in the play between understanding the real and the really real, which I'll review, but uh, <clears throat> I didn't get the link between that and the clinging. What, clinging to what? Understanding. So just to, to kind of <clears throat> reframe the language a little bit. You know, the, the, the real and really real referred back to that little dialogue when somebody asked the Tibetan master, is the self real? And he answered, yes, it's real, but not really real. You exaggerated. And so <clears throat> it really has to do with this understanding of self and selflessness or we could call it conventional reality and perhaps a more ultimate reality. So that's, that's really what the question is about and how to navigate our life in both realms. So, I mean, I've, I've probably mentioned this in previous talks, but it might be a reminder. <clears throat> you know, on the relative level, there's a glass, it's a plastic glass. We could describe it, we put water in it, we drink from it. On another level, if we looked at it through a high power microscope, there would be no glass. You know, it's that disclaimer. I have never looked through a high power microscope. <laughs> <laughs> so just uh, <laughs> indulge my uh, imagination of it. You know, the solidity of glass disappears and there's just whatever you see, you know. Atoms, electrons, I don't know. <laughs> so on one level, on the conventional level, the glass is real, you know, and we relate to it and we use it and it's, it's functional. And on another level, glass is not real at all. It's not, it's not even there. It's not perceived as glass. It's another whole level of reality. Now, it's not that glass is here and this other reality is here. It's a union. It's, a, it's the same phenomenon seen on different levels. You know? And so it's not that in a greater understanding of selflessness, somehow we're living in an altered universe. It's the same world but it's seen differently. Namely, and this is, you, I'm sure you've all had some experience of this, you know, to, to some level of perception of where we go from feeling of the body as being something solid and fixed in me, 
to some experience of the body as a flow of sensations. You know, just kind of an energy flow and the solidity of the body disappears. Even on a a slightly more, uh, less subtle level, but it's the same... Um, the same principle, you know, one of the meditation, classic meditations that the Buddha taught, which we don't really do here, but is on the 32 parts of the body, you know, where you visualize uh, just the body in parts, you know, hair and nails and teeth and flesh and different organs, to really see what, what it is that we call body. So again, in our conventional reality, we're going through life and relating, you know, this is, this is me, this is who I am, we're relating one to another, and that's, that's all fine. But would we say, you know, if we saw the liver, yeah, that's me. Probably, no, 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 it's not me, it's the gallbladder that's me. <laughs> no, on that level, me disappears. You know, the idea of self disappears. It's another order of perception. So the point of this is that the more we can drop into, just as a shorthand, the really real, you know, not the conventional level, whether it's, you know, the level of 32 parts or the level of just the body as an energy field, the more we experience that level, the less identified we are with the concept of body, with the solidity of the body as being self, because we have the wisdom of seeing on a level where that's not, you know, that, that's not the case. And so then the, the, value, the great value of this is that because of that wisdom, we can then be living in the relative world, in the conventional, ordinary world, with less attachment, you know, so that when the body goes through its inevitable changes, we suffer a lot less because we're not taking it to be who we are. We've we've seen it on another level, but it doesn't mean we don't take care of the body on the conventional level and we don't use it in the conventional way. Do you follow? So, So there's really an integration. It's the deeper our wisdom, on the more ultimate level, the freer we are in our movement in the relative world, where we mostly live. Um, I mean, there's so many, uh, so many benefits from our growing understanding of the selfless nature of this whole process, of seeing things on that level. And one, <laughs> one of the phrases which uh, I love and will serve you very, very well as you go out <clears throat> into the world, probably if you remember just this, it would save you 90% of your dukkha. <laughs> Ready? <laughs> This is a teaching from the 17th, 16th century Zen master Bankai, 
who's a bit of a renegade Zen master. Mm-hmm. One of the lines in his teachings, he says, don't side with yourself. Don't side with yourself. Don't take your own side. <laughs> you know, how often do we get into all these conflicts in so many different domains because we're siding with ourselves. And if we just can remember that, it's not necessarily that we have to side with the other, but maybe not take any sides for a while so we can see the bigger picture. it's, It's very helpful. Because there's so, there's such a one, one of the biggest arenas of attachment, which, you know, we've talked a lot about attachment to different sense pleasures and even attachment to the idea of self. The Buddha talked attachment to views, attachment to opinions. And we're often attached to things, we, opinions we know nothing about. You know, it's... Did I tell you my Saraputra rebirth story? Mm-hmm. So this is an example of attachment to a view I knew nothing about. Years ago, this goes back to like 74, 75, I was teaching at Naropa uh, Institute in Colorado, and I saw a poster for a talk by Dujam Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters. I mean, he was, he was really you know, considered a great enlightened being. Um, and the poster, and I don't know who, who put the poster out, but the poster said, Dujam Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputta, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha. Well, from the Theravada Buddhist point of view, no way. <laughs> Arhants do not take rebirth. You know, it's one of the char- defining characteristic <laughs> of the Theravada view of what Arhant means. You know, that we're no longer taking rebirth. And I had been immersed, you know, in the Burmese tradition for like 20 years. So, I mean, it was obvious that Sariputta didn't take rebirth. <laughs> But there was this poster, Dujam Rinpoche, and he's a great enlightened being. So it's like my mind went on tilt. You know, how do I hold these two views? And there was a little mini Satori there. I realized I didn't have a clue. I had no idea, you know, whether Dujam Rinpoche was the incarnation of Sariputta or not. (laughs) All I knew was that this tradition said this, and this poster said this. <laughs> when I realized that, it was so freeing to me to realize I did not have to have an opinion about this. You know, I didn't have to have a view. And it opened up just this whole appreciation of freeing the mind from attachment to views, attachment to opinions, particularly about things we know nothing about. (laughs) So I recommend it to you. It is a much freer space.
You know, and, and one of my favorite mantras these days, and has been for quite a while, and I probably have mentioned to you, it's like about some of these big questions, you know, like what's the nature of the fully enlightened mind? And who knows? It's just that the who knows, but it's not the who knows of confusion. It's the who knows of just openness. It's the who knows of recognizing, yeah, don't yet know, but I'm just staying open to possibilities. And that way we can just learn from so many different sides. You know, but if we're attached to our views, uh, it can be very limiting. It's really simple. Lighten up. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe one could say, enlighten up. (laughs) I mean, that really is it. You know, it's whether it's regard, with regard to one's views and opinions. I have, I have a Swiss colleague uh, who, who has a center in Switzerland and we're old, old friends. So he's, he's watched you know, my own teaching over all these years. Uh, I teach in Switzerland regularly. You know, and, and over the year, every five years or so, you know, I'll be presenting things you know, maybe in a slightly different way or from a different influence. And after many years, he just commented to me that I, that I have a particular uh, city. You know, the city is like, uh, I don't know, psychic power. But not really psychic, it's just you know, some... He said, even though, you know, you've, you've emphasized different things and even taught slightly different things, whatever you say, you're absolutely convinced of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably it was a true assessment. (laughs) But over the years, I've come to take that more lightly. You know, more the sense of, yeah, we do learn things over the years, and we learn things from different sides and have different perspectives and, you know, our views on things change. But can we really hold it all with that sense of just exploration, with, with some lightness, you know, that it's a continuing exploration. This path, as we've talked about, is so deep and so vast. You know, one of my other favorite little mantras is, don't draw conclusions. It's so easy, and I'm sure you've done this. I did this a million times in my practice. I'd have some experience, oh, this is it. And now I got it. And of course, a week later, or a month later, or whatever, five minutes later, oh no, it's not quite that. It's like, so not drawing conclusions, but just being with the unfolding and learning what we learn and 
kind of letting the Dharma do its work. Uh, that's really what's been learned. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question was about these two parts of the mind, you know, kind of the analytic, discursive part of the mind, which is describing, judging, assessing, and kind of just could say the bare mindfulness, which is just experiencing. And, you know, what's the relationship of the two? And is there a use for the discursive mind? And if so, how best to use it? Um, I think it is really important to understand both these sides because unless you're very unusual... You know, we, we all have both of those sides. Uh, and so, you know, how to navigate that on our path. So just a few uh, somewhat related comments. Uh, first, in terms of, is there a way to occupy that mind in the service of mindfulness? And of course, kind of... The, 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 in a way, the simplest and most obvious way is through the use of noting. You know, when you're noting, that's, a, that's the conceptual mind. If you're noting what's happening, even in the very simplest note, you know, in, out, pressure, hearing, whatever, as you're noting each arising object, you're engaging that conceptual part of the mind in the service of mindfulness. So that would be one way, you could say, of co-opting, you know, that. In terms of longer discursive patterns than simply the note, obviously just the the random wandering mind is not very helpful, you know, because we're just lost in these thought patterns. And so I think it is very helpful to practice becoming aware that that's happening, using a note, you know, to do it. And, and uh, employing different strategies depending on where you are and your particular temperament. So I'll just give you two examples. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. We, we need to use different skillful means at different times. So for some kind of temperament, and I would say this may be helpful uh, as our practice matures a little bit, uh, where we're simply not disturbed by them. You know, Suzuki Roshi has a line in his book, 
Zen mind, beginner's mind, where he says, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and let them go. You know, and so then, but that's, that approach, I think, is quite helpful if there's some degree of stability in the practice and awareness, so we're not simply carried off on half an hour of wandering. You know, but if we're in a space here where thoughts come and go, and they don't bother us. On the other hand, if there are patterns that we're getting caught up in again and again, you know, and are very seductive, sometimes really being quite strong. It's in Tibetan Buddhism, Manjushri is the bodhisattva of wisdom, and he's depicted with a sword. You know, and it's the sword of discerning wisdom. And so there were many times in my practice where I would just be caught up in some seductive pattern over and over and over again. And at a certain point, I would okay, enough. Yeah. Joseph, enough. <laughs> you know, we, we were really taking a strong, yeah, I don't need to do this. And so there's the whole spectrum of ways we're relating to not getting caught up. The last part of the question, is there a way to use longer discursive thought in the service of our practice? And I think this is the difference between conscious reflection about something, you know, about the Dharma, about our experience, where we are consciously calling it to mind It's as if in that whole process, we're actually being mindful of the whole conversation in our mind. You know, we're using it and exploring. As opposed to, and I'm sure you've all had this, I've I've had this million times, where my mind would get seduced by Dharma thoughts, but I'd be be really lost. I'd be totally carried away by them somehow justifying the being lost in them because they were about the Dharma. You know? So that was very seductive. It took a long time for me to see the difference between, yes, mindful reflection, which can be really helpful and actually even liberating, to lost in Dharma fantasy. And so there's all that. You know, it's... it's it's a good question, and it's worth worth really exploring all those elements. Okay, I don't I don't want to pull a Muninja. <laughs> <laughs> Eleven o'clock at night, we're still here. <laughs> um, there'll be, you know, over these next couple of days, there'll be lots of time for talk and discussion around different things. Um, I did just want to comment that you know the closing ceremony uh, is tomorrow night. Uh, I'm actually, although my colleagues will be here, I'm, I'm actually leaving Friday morning. I'm uh, creating, maybe some of you know, uh, with uh, my friend Dan Harris, who's you know he's an ABC News anchor, and created this meditation app. And it's called, and he, he it's basically his whole, based on his book, Ten Percent Happier which arose out of a course, a retreat that he came to, 
and he came as a complete skeptic about this whole business, and he left completely enthusiastic about the possibility of Dharma practice. It was amazing. It was like a conversion experience. And so he wrote, he wrote this book about his experience and also about his professional career, which is called 10% Happy. It's a very, very entertaining book, particularly entertaining in his description of the 10-day retreat. <laughs> He's looking at it through a very jaundiced eye, even as the Dharma is doing its magic. Anyway, so we're creating this app together, and uh, I'm going to be doing some videoing for it, so that's, that's why I have to leave early. Uh, the, the, the subtitle of the app is, it's 10% happier, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's short little 10-minute, five-minute little things. Uh, so let's just sit together for a few minutes. We'll go out on this.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.